Good afternoon, short-term shoppers. You are now in the short-term show special episode series on the Western North Carolina mountains. So this is everywhere from Asheville all the way down to Bryson City, basically that entire southwestern corner of the state. We're going to be doing a deep dive, 10 episodes worth of content on investing in this part of North Carolina. Now, we do have some supplemental materials for you over on our website, things like purchase prices of investment properties in this market, as well as the AirDNA income data. Thank you, friends over at AirDNA. So if you guys want to know uh, what all of these properties cost, you know, the different purchase prices, you can see that on the shorttermshop.com, as well as the income data. You can find that there too. If you guys want to buy an investment property in Western North Carolina with a short-term shop agent, email us at agents at the shorttermshop.com and we will get you hooked up. Or if you just have more questions, you want to come hang out with us some more. We've got a great Facebook group with a wonderful community of investors over at short-term rental, long-term wealth, same title as my book. And if you guys want to chat with us live anytime, we've got a call every Thursday and you can join that at strquestions.com. We look forward to seeing you over there. Hey guys, welcome back to the Short-Term Shop Special Episode Series on the North Carolina side of the Smokies. Today, we're going to be talking about financing. We, of course, have your favorite agent in Western North Carolina, our resident Viking and axe thrower, Jay. I can't look at you, Jay Lawrence. Uh, and we also have a, uh, a special lending guest today. I want to introduce Megan Winterberg. Megan, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you're doing, what you're doing with your investments, all that fun stuff, because uh, this is the first time we've had you on. Thanks, Avery. Happy to be here. So I am an investor turned lender, bought my first cabin with Avery two years ago. Since then, we've bought seven. So just really scaling that up and left corporate America to become a lender. So been a wild ride. That's uh that's that's faster than I scaled up. <laughs> I was I think at 5 in 2 years. So uh very you're a very experienced investor in terms of owning short-term rentals and owning them in different markets and then you know creative financing to be able to scale more quickly on top of being a loan officer. So we Jay and I don't have to say, well we're not licensed loan officers, so you have to ask one. So we've got one here to answer those questions. So let's start at the very beginning. I'm a brand new investor. I think I want to buy something with Jay in wherever. Where, where am I buying, Jay? Maggie Valley? Sure. Why not? Or, or We're buying in Maggie Valley. And uh, so I need financing. So what is probably going to be the easiest type of financing for me to get as a new investor? You know, I own my house, got a pretty good pretty good W2. What's going to be the easiest thing for me to do? Honestly, it'd really be conventional financing, most likely second home. If the client's willing to go there 14 days a year, which why wouldn't they an excuse to go vacation in their own property, but that's really going to save them the least they're the most capital. So it's the lowest barrier to entry, if you will, could go as low as 10% down and you're going to get the best terms on your loan. So that's usually the best spot to start. That's going off your debt to income ratio. But typically when you're buying your first or second investment property and you have steady income more than two years, that's really a really solid route to start. You know, and visiting here 14 days out of the year, I think you can handle it. It's it's, it's a great <laughs> place. So you're not going to want to leave either. So. All right. So 
let's talk about the types of conventional loans. So there's two types of conventional loans you can get for a short-term rental. The first is going to be just conventional investment loan. And a lot of people think that you have to put 25% down for an investment. And that's actually not true. A lot of people think you have to put 20. That is also not true. The minimum down payment for a conventional investment loan is 15% down. So what are the rules about that, Megan? What can I buy uh, if I want to put 15% down investment loan? So I love this loan. So with a conventional investment loan, the lowest down payment is 15% up to a purchase price of about 854,000 for this year, for 2023. That's our loan limits. So it's slowly creeping up every single year. The good part about this is, let's say you already have a second home in your favorite North Carolina market and you like it so much, you wanna buy more in the same market. I'm living proof of that. This conventional investment loan still goes off your debt to income ratio, but you just have to increase your down payment slightly to 15%. If you're going above the 854,000, then you'll have to do 20% down. You don't have the stipulations of having to go there two weeks a year. It's basically as if you're buying a rental rental property, long-term, short-term, this loan's perfect for that. In addition, let's say your debt to income starts to get a little tight because you don't have that rental income on your taxes, but you have capital. You want to be able to scale as quickly as possible. Best part is if you have a primary housing expense, so rent, own, just not living for free, then we can add in proposed rental income to help offset that debt. So it can just help you still obtain that property. And then once they're on their taxes, it just makes it easier to buy more and more. Okay. So if I'm buying a conventional investment and I'm a little light on my DTI or a little heavy on my DTI, sorry, you can use what the property will probably make in rent to kind of offset that so I can still get the loan? Yes. So during the actual transaction, it's a specific income appraisal that we order. And so we run projections basically on a conservative end for the income itself, but it is really helpful. So it can still offset that mortgage payment for the transaction so you can still get that property. And for people who are listening who may not... Uh, know what DTI is. What is DTI? So that we are looking at your debt to income ratio. And basically with the Fannie Freddie guidelines for a conventional loan, you can go up to 50% debt to income ratio. So that's all of your income, all of your expenses. So we're looking at your qualifying income. You must have a two-year history, typically at least W-2 self-employment. And we're not just looking at what you're making today. We are looking back at the full two years to make sure it is steady and and that's how we calculate your qualifying income. And then all of your expenses, mortgages, student loan, car loan, credit card debt, all of that's factored in, even rent payments for if that was your primary. All of that would have to equal or come out to a calculation max of 50% with that new property's mortgage as well. Okay. Very, very good explanation of DTI. So um, with conventional loans, I'm going to go over a few more little rules. So you have to get them in your personal name. You can't get a conventional loan to your LLC and you can only have 10 conventionally financed properties. If you're married, 
you and your spouse can have 20 total, but you would each have to qualify for 10 individually. So if you go on the mortgage together to buy a house, then that counts for one for each of you. So you'd have to, if you have both your names on all 10 properties, you can only get 10. If you alternate whose name goes on each property, you can get 20 as long as you can um, qualify for those independently. And let's talk about second home loans now, because I find those to be slightly controversial with people abusing them. But first, let's talk about what a second home loan is and what the rules are about that. So there's really going to be three main components for it to be considered a second home. It needs to be at least 45 miles from your primary residence. So you can't buy a a second home within your hometown, then you need to self-manage the property. You can't be putting it under a property manager. You need to retain control of the property so you can go use it as a second home whenever you would like. And then you really need to have the intent to use it as that second and vacation home at least two weeks a year. You can absolutely rent it out while you're not there. But the key word is really having the intent as vacation home first, not as an investment property. Okay. So I think that a lot of people, like I said, abuse this type of loan. I think it is a great product if you really do intend to use it for part of the year and then rent it out when you're not using it. Now, where people get kind of in the weeds on this is people doing like partnerships where they're not going on the loan, but they're going on the deed and, you know, splitting equity and, you know, just going, doing a bunch of fancy footwork, so to speak, some tap dancing to get multiple second home loans in the same market, which guys, that's cheating. That is a... Might be a gray area now, but to me, it's kind of a red area of mortgage fraud. So if you're using a second home loan, my biggest piece of advice is to make sure that you really are going to use it for 14 days out of the year. Don't try to bend the rules. Uh, Don't try to get cute. I've never seen anybody get in trouble for mortgage fraud on these yet, but I think that day is going to come and I don't want it to be any of you who are listening to this. So if you're going to use it yourself, great, go for it. But if you're running spreadsheets on the property, then that probably means you should put down the extra 5% and make it an investment loan where you don't have to worry about mortgage fraud. It's allowed to be an investment. So uh, just keep that in mind. You can rent it out when you're not using it and make your money, but don't, don't bend the rules here. Uh, can we use p- projected rent income after I've just gone on that spiel about mortgage fraud? Can we use projected rent income to offset DTI when it comes to uh, second home loans? You can't. So that's one factor. It's purely looking at your debt to income. And I did want to mention something that you had said to Avery about the abusing as well, too, because I couldn't agree more. I've yet to witness this, but if you're looking to cash flow and your goal is absolutely cash flowing, 10% down is not going to get you that cash flow. You're looking at putting at least 15 or 20% down if that's your goal. 20% or more, then you'll have no mortgage insurance. Under 20%, you're going to have mortgage insurance, whether it's an investment or second home. So when you are running those numbers, you need to factor all those in also. If I don't have a primary home, can I get a second home loan? Yes, you can. And I'm living proof of that. I rent my primary and I have a second home. Oh, I did not know that. We sold our California property to start buy an out-of-state. Oh, I oh yeah. Wow. Full Monty. No wonder you were nervous. You <laughs> sold your house to start buying investment properties. Wow. I didn't mm-hmm. know that. Wow. That's ballsy. Yeah. Okay. We've done some crazy things. Let me tell you. <laughs> okay. Well, let's get through because we're going to get into the creative financing piece towards the end of this. So to get 
I'm going to get through the more common types of loans first, and then we'll get into some of the the more, why do I want to say complicated? The creative huh. is what yeah. the word that I mean. Yeah. yeah. All right. So um, second home loans, also you have to get in your personal name, cannot get in an LLC. Also, the only 10 finance properties also applies here. And just make sure you're following the rules, guys. Um, I would say that, so you can walk into any bank, mortgage broker, lender, whoever, and get a conventional loan. I would say that's the easiest type to get. Uh, in terms of being able to find uh, different banks, mortgage brokers, lenders, et cetera, are going to have different what's called overlays over the Fannie and Freddie guidelines. So that means extra rules that are specific to their company on top laying over. It's why I call it's called an overlay, the existing Fannie and Freddie rules. So I see people sometimes in forums say, oh, well, my lender says this. So you're wrong. Well, your lender works for a different company than whoever you're arguing with on the internet, like a Karen. So you have to sometimes shop around and call different lenders to see what their different rules are to see who's going to say yes. So, you know, if, if one lender says you're too tight on DTI, that might be a rule that's specific to their company only. And if you go to a different company, you might not run into that. So the number one rule of real estate investing is keep going till you get a yes. And uh, so don't stop just because you called like Wells Fargo or somebody like a huge bank like that who has a lot of overlays and they said, no, uh, you might want to switch to a smaller, like more regional or local bank uh, or mortgage broker to uh, to get that done. So just something to keep in mind. Anyway, they're the easiest to find, always going to be the easiest to get in terms of, you know, well, if you don't have a complicated financial situation, which we'll get to in a minute. Uh, they're going to have the lowest interest rate in most cases. So it, I see a lot of people want to overcomplicate their real estate investing right out of the gate. They're like, okay, I'm ready to buy my first property. Where are my hard money lenders? <laughs> like you don't have to go crazy and get a hard money loan. Um, if you can get an investment, if you have the ability to get a conventional investment loan, I'm always going to do that before I move on to any other type of product. However, there are many, many times throughout everyone's lives and, and real estate investing journeys where you may not qualify for a conventional loan or not qualify for the amount that you would like to spend. So, you know, maybe you've got the down payment for a million dollar property, but you just switched from W-2 work to 1099 work and you don't have two years of income of 1099 work to show on your taxes. So you don't qualify for as much as you'd like to spend with a conventional loan. So the second, I would say the second most common type of loan to get for short-term rental is going to be what's called a DSCR loan. DSCR stands, stands for debt service coverage ratio. Now I say it's second most common, but you kind of can't just walk into any old bank or mortgage company and find one of these. It's going to be, there's a handful of specific mortgage companies out there that offer this. Uh, but what they are, which Megan, and would you give us a definition of um, a DSCR loan other than just naming the acronym letters like I <laughs> Yes. So with a DSCR loan, we are not looking at your personal debt to income to qualify. We're looking at three main things, your assets to cover typically as low as 20% down, six months reserves of the subject property, not the rest of your portfolio, your credit score, and then the property's rental income. So for most DSCR lenders, they're going to want a minimum ratio of one to one. And basically what that means for qualifying is let's say your mortgage payment's going to be $5,000 a month. 
Your DSCR income analysis that comes in must gross at least 5,000 a month to make it a one-to-one ratio for them to approve the loan. So those are basically the three main items. We do not look at your debt to income whatsoever. Okay. So that's pretty darn cool that I can get a loan on a property based on what the property will make. You are looking at my credit score to make sure that I pay my bills, et cetera, but it doesn't have anything to do with my own debt to income. So it's almost kind of limitless with a few limitations, what you can do with DSCR loans. So uh, what is the ratio? What is the debt service coverage ratio that is most common that we need to to see a property have in order to get a loan, one of these types of loans? Most lenders are sticking with the one-to-one for now. For the DSCR lenders, something to keep in mind, each one may be slightly different. So what Avery said, even with some of the big banks having those overlays, the DSCR lenders don't have to follow those Fannie Freddie guidelines because it is a different kind of loan product. So right now it's been fairly consistent with one-to-one ratio. If it's above 1.5 to one, that could help you get even a little bit better terms of your loan. Something else to really hone in on on DSCR is you can close in your personal name, you can close in an LLC, you can have partnerships. So that can really help some people scale. And also you do need to personally guarantee the loan. Some people don't remember that. What does personally guarantee mean? So if for some reason there was a default in payment in the LLC, that's why you're personally guaranteeing it should not be showing up necessarily on your personal credit report, but it would if there was ever a default in payment, something along those lines. Good to know. So um, back to the the ratio thing. So if a property's mortgage is going to be $5,000 a month, then we need to show that the property is going to make $5,000 a month, right? Yes. Okay just one clarification I wanted to make. So when I'm getting a DSCR loan, does that show up on my debt to income ratio for potential future conventional loans or does that not show up? For the most part, it will still pull in on your personal credit. So that's something to keep in mind. We have one DSCR lender where we may not be able to have it close on or show up on your personal credit if we close directly in LLC. But the norm for DSCR is you still will have it pull in on the mortgage unless everything's just done in the business. So it will affect future debt to income ratios. But one thing to also consider is the moment these properties hit your tax returns, for the most part, it's going to make it much easier for qualifying once we can see some of that rental income. Okay. So it does affect your DTI, but as soon as you file your taxes for the next year, you'll be able to show the income from it and it it cancels that out basically. Exactly. I mean, obviously some people go into the weeds and have some complex, to say it lightly, tax returns of the way they do their partnerships, if they're going to have it on their personal tax returns versus business tax returns. So definitely if there's ever any questions, just schedule a consult with honestly, an experienced loan officer where we can tell you what the, what it's going to look like. Those are kind of the main things. And each DSCR lender may calculate the income differently. So something to think about, some people want to know where are we getting that income to know if it meets the one-to-one ratio. Does the property have any prior income? That's helpful. At least 12 months, that may be an option. What if it's new construction? What if it was grandma and papa's second home? That's what I just bought. No DSCR, prior income, whatnot. We have AirDNA. We can look at that. We also have different income appraisals. So there's multiple facets to pull this income based off the lender we're working with. Okay. 
And is there any limit on the number of loans I can get when it comes to DSCRs? Not necessarily. There's not a hard rule like 10 in your name. So it's up to the DSCR lenders if they may want to limit, if they see that the client has so many already in their name, but there's nothing hard in the stand. If you show that you have the proper assets and reserves, you can keep scaling. Okay. And so this loan sounds like way too good to be true. So let's talk about the butts. So what are some of the things that are not as cool about DSCR loans that might be a little better with conventional loans? So no matter the purchase price, the minimum down payment would be 20%. So there's no way going below that at the current time. So that's when you will have to have increased down payment, increased reserves. It's definitely going to be more than one to two months reserves. Interest rates are typically about 1% higher than conventional give or take. Also, you're always going to have the best loan terms when you're typically having a FICO above 760. So if you're ever concerned about that, check that out. And then there are prepayment penalties on most of the DSCR products. Basically, the most common prepayment penalty is the standard five-year prepayment penalty. It's called a step-down, a 54321. So basically, what that means is Once you obtain that loan, if you chose to refinance that loan in one year into a conventional loan because you saw interest rates go down, your tax returns were filed, your debt to income solid, you would pay five years of interest as that prepayment penalty. If you refinanced in year five, you'd pay one year of interest as that prepayment penalty. And then year six through 30, no penalty. So that's the most general. There are ways to buy down your prepayment penalty and do some other creative things, but that's something you really need to factor in. I have three DSCR loans myself, all with a variety of prepayment penalties. And I will say that's something I absolutely factored in knowing when I may decide to refinance, I might do it in year three. I might do it in year five. I know how that prepayment penalty will affect my cash flow. Have a plan. Exactly. Could not say that more. I think they're a great avenue, but also to make sure you understand the numbers. I have some clients who do not realize DSCR rates are higher. So really making sure that's factored in, but it's still, in my personal opinion, if the numbers make sense and you are comfortable with it, I think it's a great loan product. It is a great loan product. And I think a lot of people just think like, oh my God, this is amazing. And then they get in and they're like, well, wait, this isn't good. It has a higher interest rate. Well, duh, of course it does because there is risk to the lender in lending you money to buy a property based on only the idea that you're going to manage it well enough to be able to pay your mortgage every month. They've got to protect themselves somehow. And that interest rate is typically how they do that. So um, that is why the interest rate is higher on those because it's a riskier loan to the bank. But if used properly, it can be a really great way to, to scale your portfolio. Uh, Anything else on DSCR loans that we haven't hit on? I just make sure and keep in mind too that DSCR loans can sometimes take a little bit longer to close than conventional loans because of the internal income analysis. So it's always good to give yourself roughly 45 days for closing. And then seller concessions, that's something that's different based off conventional loans versus DSCR. So with DSCR, you can typically ask for 3% 
of the purchase price and seller concessions. That's a general rule of thumb, which can help cover some of those points costs or maybe help buy your rate down a little bit further. And then conventional can vary based off the loan product. All right. Would you say that, uh, I was going to say, would you say that it it helps the loan process on a DRC, uh, that that loan type um, in a community that has more short-term rentals than opposed to something way out in the boonies? Yes. Not a lot of comps available. Yes. Fantastic question. So when you're in a solid short-term market, being able to have those projections, not just from an appraiser and air DNA, it gives you a very strong case when presenting that loan to that lender, which is fantastic. I do have clients where they may be purchasing in not a very short-term specific, but the numbers make sense and they're allowed to do short-term rentals there. And they can be harder to approve, but not impossible if we can still find some solid comps. If there aren't solid comps for the area and you're going to a brand new Happyville, Alabama, for example, and you're the first short-term rental in that city and there aren't those comps, there's a very good chance it won't get approved. Very good. Oh yeah. And that's a good, good job, Jay, bringing that up. So what are they, what are appraisers using, or is it appraisers or is it just the underwriting that is using, that's looking at rental income? So are they looking at income history? Are they looking at AirDNA data? What are they looking at? Most common is going to be AirDNA and the subject property itself if it has at least 12 months of rental income. If we don't have enough comps with AirDNA that are actually similar to the property, or it doesn't have any rental income, then they'd be pulling in a 1007 appraisal. So it's an income appraisal. Those appraisals are designed for long-term rentals. So I will tell you the appraisers, it's very market specific of how conservative it may come in or how accurate it will come in with short-term projections. In general, Smokies, North Carolina have pretty solid projections that come in because the appraisers really understand that market. But I, I could tell you two to three markets right now that are still short-term rental heavy and that appraisal is going to come in conservatively. So good thing is when you're getting pre-approved, if we know it's going to be the DSCR route, which we will looking it over. And if we know what market you're specific, the buyer's looking at, then it'll help understand the best route to go with projection. So it's very important to communicate if you're looking in multiple markets or what market you're looking at. Because if we go Florida, we're having a very specific strategy that's different than what we're talking about here. Now, well, they, um, so that BFE property that you find way out in the middle of nowhere, um, if it's a short-term rental already, that kind of helps your case. It would. Yeah. If it has at least 12 months and those 12 months history show that it was managed properly so it can meet the DSCR ratio. I know, unfortunately, some client, well, not some clients, I mean, some sellers don't manage well and their numbers aren't fantastic. So if all we have is that rental income to go off of, basically the buyer would just need to increase their down payment till they could like hit the one-to-one ratio where the mortgage was low enough. Yeah. uh, Sadly, you find a lot of those up here that, you know, they have a second home and they just rent it out to float the mortgage, you know? So Mm -hmm. there's, there's not as many hardcore investors out here as you might think there, there are a lot of just, you know, middle of the ground investors. So not yet. Not yet. (laughs) Come on, on, Megan. I got a place out in Western North Carolina for you. Let's go. I'm thinking about it. We might be visiting this year. So I'll let you know. Definitely. I'll take you axe throwing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. 
Uh, next, we're going on to the next point here. So uh, the last major type of loan, and I would say the most difficult to find is going to be the true commercial loan. Uh, so we talked about conventional DSCR products are typically what's called a portfolio product. Now we're talking about commercial. So with true commercial loans, you're typically having to go to a local or a regional bank. And the problem with this, or not a problem, but the the hang up here is that a lot of regional and local banks aren't quite on board with short-term rentals yet, which is kind of funny because they are on board with hotels and short-term rentals are effectively hotels. Anyway, once once banks start looking at, I'm on a tangent now, once banks start looking at short-term rentals as hotels rather than single family residents and then residential real estate, that's going to completely change the financing game of short-term rentals. But for now, most of them aren't on board. Some of them are though. You would have to find a local bank, probably local to the property. And the thing about commercial uh, is these banks want to build a relationship with you. So if you're planning on buying one house in Western North Carolina, you're probably not going to get approved. So what you're going to have to show a commercial bank, it, it, it's like a movie, at least, you know, when, when I've gotten commercial loans on, I haven't gotten a commercial on a STR yet, but I have on LTRs and multis. You have to present them with a PFS, a personal financial statement and a business plan and show them all of your experience and what you plan to do in the market. And then they're going to go in a room full of people in suits and called committee and decide if they want to give you money or not. So it can be more difficult. Uh, but if you're truly trying to build a business in a market, you're going to have a better shot at it because these banks want to build relationships with you. So they're going to make you put money in their bank. Uh, sometimes it doesn't necessarily have to be local to the property. It could also be local to you personally. So if you're in California trying to buy a property in Western North Carolina and you're going to go with a commercial loan, you're going to need a commercial bank either in North Carolina or in California. You're probably not going to find a commercial bank in Texas that's going to be willing to lend someone who lives in California money for a property in North Carolina. They like things to be local to them. They like to be able to drive by the asset. They're going to want you to put some money in their bank to show that you are in it for the long haul. And they're probably going to want to see that you're buying multiple properties over the course of the years. So um, it's not impossible. I've seen it done. There are several out there that'll do it, but it is just a harder, harder nut to crack than some of the other loan types. Uh, do you guys have anything to add to commercial lending before we move on to creative? I do. I definitely research commercial quite a bit prior to joining the lending space myself and learning a whole gamut of things. And something else, they're rarely going to be a 30-year fixed loan. So you can get DSCR 30-year fixed, no balloon payments. Every commercial lender that I was speaking with, we were looking at three, five, seven-year adjustable terms, sometimes amortized over maybe only 20 years. So really factoring in some of those payments, I was actually debating about getting a commercial loan when I went DSCR, but it was a shorter adjustable period, amortized over 20 years. And I was able to get a DSCR product, one that was actually amortized over 40 years. So that mortgage made much more sense for me because I was able to cash flow more. So they don't always have prepayment penalties. Some of them still do. I have a whole spreadsheet of what some and some don't do. And if you are a first-time investor, they wouldn't give me the time of day. They really wanted to know how committed to a market I was. That's a really good anecdote. <laughs> exactly what I was kind of trying to convey to people and, and it's happened to you. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's difficult to do, but it can be done. Um, now 
we will move on to creative financing. So this is a big one that's out there right now is creative financing. Uh, creative financing can be a number of things. It can be owner financing. It can be subject to financing, assumable. Uh, so basically anything that is creative outside of just your traditional lending scopes. So first, let's talk about owner financing. I would say this is the least common type. I mean, it's all pretty uncommon, guys, by the way. Um, because most of the time sellers, including myself, like if I'm selling something, I want my money to take off and go do the next thing with it. Uh, in terms of getting wrapped up with somebody for owner financing or subject to like, I don't want to be bothered by you as a buyer for the rest of my life. Like I buy my house and buzz off. So, um, it can be a little bit difficult. It's not, again, not impossible to do. And But let's talk about owner financing first. So typically for owner financing to work, the seller has to own the property outright because a lender is not going to allow the transfer of the property to a new owner without that loan being paid off. So again, I don't want to say it's impossible because there are going to be people out there who figured out how to do it, but it's really difficult. So you have to start with an owner who has the property paid off. Uh, and then typically they're going to want the equity as a down payment. So if they paid 200 for it and it's now worth 800, it's entirely possible they're going to want a several hundred thousand dollar down payment. Maybe not the entire amount of equity. 600,000 would be a lot. Um maybe that was a bad example number, but you get what I mean. Like there it's not going to be in most cases like a, oh yeah, just give me 500 bucks to start and then we'll start making mortgage payments to me. You do need an attorney to write these up. This is not something that your real estate agent, it would be in their scope because there's a lot of terms that are way outside the typical real estate contract in these markets. Um, but owner financing can totally work if they would like a payment every month. Maybe they don't want to pay a ton of taxes when they sell the house because they're not planning to 1031 exchange. Uh, any number of reasons, but it can be a little bit difficult to get, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't try. I'm not discouraging anyone from any creative financing avenues. I'm just trying to like be real with you here that some of these things are pretty hard to do. Uh, the next one, this I think is the most applicable to the current market, and that is subject to financing. So subject to financing is where you essentially unofficially take over the current owner's loan. So it's not assumable because that's a very specific type of mortgage where they can legally just assign it to you and you assume it. So subject to is where it's not official. You just start paying their mortgage and they sell the house to you. And again, you need an attorney. There's tons of content out there on this guys. And I am not a subject to influencer. So just forgive any mistakes I am making uh, with my general synopsis of it. But anyway, the reason that this is popular right now is because a lot of people bought houses in during COVID and just after at like two and 3% mortgage rates. Now those same mortgages are at like seven, 8%. How much Megan, like how, what's the average right now? I know conventional could invest conventional could be seven and a half. And I have 2.875 block during COVID. So yeah, night and day. Yeah. Yeah. So if you assume one of those mortgages from one of those sellers, then your interest stays that same two to 3%. And you would just typically, again, make the down payment be the equity. So if somebody bought a house for 800, it's worth a million. Now you can assume or not assume subject to take over the payments on their loan on that 800. And then maybe you're paying like a $200,000 down payment. So they've got their equity out. 
and now you're you've just taken over their payments. Um, it's again not not super common for people to agree to that, but uh, it's definitely something that's done a lot more than it ever has been because this is definitely a time in history that calls for that. And again, it's a situation where they kind of they might want to just take their money and go while they are getting their equity back out you are still going to probably have to bother them at some point because the loan's still going to be in their name for like, hey, I need this for the taxes or I need to log into that. So you're never going to be like fully rid of them as a seller until you actually, re until the buyer refinances. So does anybody have anything to add to that? I might not have done a great job of explaining that. Go follow Pace yeah. Corby if you really want to uh, understand that. <laughs> yeah. And I, I got to say though, you know, the, the owner financing and, and the subject too, that they're not common at all up here. Most owners will not agree to it. Um, I know this because I have a client right now that we're looking for something like that. And it's just, you know, it's hard to find. Like if you're looking for that, it's really hard to find up here and it's very few and far between. Jay, I couldn't agree with you more. I feel like in solid investor markets, there have too many offers that are not seller financing or owner financing to not think about yeah, they don't entertaining. Do they don't need to. Mm -hmm. And Avery, something you said, I wanted to really remind people too, because I'm actually trying to sell or finance something where I live and there's always terms to consider. They want to see you have some meat in the game. So you could be putting at least 20, 25% down creatively, however you choose to finance that, but you're not just going to take over their payments most likely without a significant down payment. And usually sometimes they're only five-year terms where you're going to have that balloon payment. So you need to have that plan going in on how are you going to actually take care of that loan? within that time frame. Yeah, definitely need a plan for one of those. There's mm -hmm. just so many moving parts with them and so much you can, you know, terms that you can put in there as long as you know your attorney drafts it up. So all right. Well, Anything else on on that? Um and guys, there are like uh, the people who are really successful with that, you know, they're spending dozens of thousands of dollars on direct mail trying to dig up uh these types of deals. So typically in most cases there are people out there who've been able to do this uh, with, you know, nice vacation rental properties, but typically those strategies work really, really well in like C-class single family residential, like that you're probably going to long-term rent. Um, because a lot of that's where you're going to find distressed sellers and distressed sellers are typically the type of seller that will do these kinds of things. Whereas if you're buying in a true vacation market, like all these properties are typically already second homes, like vacation homes that people are actually using for their personal vacations or investment properties. And so those types of sellers are just going to unload stuff at retail and they don't care if it sits for six months um, before they do this kind of stuff. So again, I don't want to discourage you from trying it, but I just want to set the expectation that it's pretty difficult to, to get done. All right. So let's talk about a few other things. So there's a few other things that I think would fall under creative financing, but they are actual loans from actual lenders. A few things. So HELOCs, he loans. there's the company called Nectar out there now that they're going to be on the, the OG podcast, the short-term show here pretty soon. By the time this comes out, that episode will be out and they can finance down payments uh, based on your cash flow of your other short-term rentals. So there's definitely some other options out there for getting money together. But uh, Megan, let's talk about HELOCs and he loans for a minute. What's the difference between those two things? So a HELOC is something that you're able to typically draw out based off a primary residence or a secondary residence. 
Secondary can be difficult if you have been renting it out and not just using it as a second home. You are pulling equity out of your property. With a HELOC, one thing that's nice about it is you can typically reuse it. So let's say you want to pull 100000 out of your primary residence and you have enough equity in there to do that. Well, you can use that for your down payment. And as you pay that HELOC back, you still have it to reuse it. And usually it's a draw period where you can use it for 15 years and then a payback period for an additional 15 years. So that's one nice bonus of a HELOC. A he loan is kind of a one and done kind of a thing. So you're able to take a one-time loan pulling equity against your property. I have clients who ask me, why would you do this? I personally have a he loan. What would you choose that over a HELOC? So investment properties, which multiple clients have those because we have multiple in the same market, you can't get a HELOC on an investment loan. And if you see that equity sitting there and you want to use it for your next down payment, how are you going to get it out with either doing a cash out refinance, but maybe I don't want to touch that 2.875 interest rate. So I can take a he loan, one-time draw, pull out whatever amount, and now I can use that for a down payment. So it's just a one-time. So as I pay off a he loan, you cannot reuse it, but it's a valuable tool to access equity of an investment property. All right. And I want to clarify too, that these are not true. You're not doing a refinance of the property. This is not a cash out refi where you're completely changing the loan. It's a second loan on top of your mortgage that you already have. A HELOC, you can pay back and reuse. A HE loan, you can just use one time. And once it's paid off, that's the end of it. Absolutely. And a lot of times you're going to see interest only payments for the first 15 years. So definitely when you're looking into obtaining a HELOC, you'd want to understand what's that mortgage payment going to be? Or, and am I comfortable paying that HELOC payment with the new property's mortgage payment and what that's cash flowing as well? It's a very valuable tool, but you just want to make sure you understand all of it going into it. And in what situations might you use a HELOC or a HELOAN? And can you get both of those on investment? properties. I know you kind of touched on that, but can you go a little deeper? Yeah. So basically it's a great option when you know you're going to need a down payment and maybe you don't have that liquidity or you don't want to pull that out of stocks or a 401k loan, that kind of a thing. So if so, and you're eligible for a HELOC, you're going to be looked at with your debt to income ratio, just as if you were getting a conventional loan. And if so, it's a great tool to use for your down payment. It's absolutely allowed we would factor in your HELOC payment when doing your pre-approval. So we know what that estimated HELOC payment should be. So we know going in, if that's going to be a down payment source, that we've already got that covered when qualifying you. And if you're not sure, but you think that might be a route, absolutely tell your loan officer because a HELOC payment must be calculated into your debt-to-income ratio. And same with a HE loan. So HELOCs, are not for investment properties, primary and potentially secondary homes. And he loans are specific for investment in second homes. And that is something that I don't think we can shout loud enough to people is to make sure you disclose every detail of every transaction, both inside and outside the deal that you're working on to your loan officer. Because what you don't want to do 
is not mentioned that you're doing a HELOC at the same time that you're going through the lending process and under contract on a, a property. And, you know, maybe the HELOC had, maybe you weren't necessarily planning on using all of the funds from the HELOC for your down payment. Uh, you were just, you know, getting that on the side. You didn't disclose it. It closes sometime during the time that you're under contract on this house. And then underwriting at the end says, oh crap, now your DTI is over the limit because you have this HELOC that you didn't have when we started. Now your loan is denied. So it can be any detail of anything like that, guys. But that's the most common one that I see is not disclosing either, you know, refinances going on with other properties or HELOCs going on with other properties not being disclosed and then causing a surprise at the end. Also, you know, as you know, don't quit jobs, don't finance cars, don't open no open new credit of any kind while you're under contract on a property because it can mess up your DTI uh, and you don't want to be embarrassed at the end and say, oh, sorry, that Victoria's Secret card set me over the edge and now I can't buy this house from you. So yeah. Avery, I'm glad you mentioned that. Oh, I'm sorry, Jay. Just I just had three clients this yeah. week or last week open business credit cards while they're oh. under contract. And we're still able to get qualify them, but here's the deal. It wait till you're closed. Just wait till you're closed and open that business card in cabin one, two, three name. So in regards to that, because we will know if you open new credit and if there is any debt, let's say you're not putting anything on that credit card, the underwriter could still say, Hey, there's a new credit line. And based off your history, yeah, we're going to add this potential monthly payment in, which then could disqualify you for the loan. Or now you have to increase your down payment. So when in doubt, wait, or just ask your loan officer before doing anything. Yeah. And the, the HELOCs and stuff. I mean, if you're, you know, you own your house and, and you're trying to get in the short-term game, it can be a good option, you know, to help you out with that money right up front. So you know, if you don't necessarily have a bunch of liquid assets, like they're saying, you know, it's a an option to explore. Well, and HELOCs can take roughly 30 days to close based off if you're using where we work or if you're using a local bank that you already planned on using. Either way, if you know you're going to be using a HELOC, start that process. So don't wait and get pre-approved and start offering on properties. A few clients I have, we have had to extend closing because they did not, they were not proactive enough on the HELOC process. And we need to make sure the HELOC closes and the funds are in your account and there's no hold on those funds before we can close the loan. That's just the general rule of thumb in this business anyway. Don't do anything last minute. Like, mm -hmm. you know, be proactive, you know, get a, get your plan going and get it done. Like last minute is, it suck. <laughs> I always say a general rule of thumb is you want all assets, if they're not in that bank account that you're going to be using within two weeks before your close date at the absolute latest, anything past that could cause a potential extension that you don't want. And we do need to source your assets. So that's something to think about too, is understanding where that down payment is coming from. We need to be able to track that for the last 60 days if it's not seasoned already in that bank account. All right. Well, guys, do you have anything else to add before I sign us off? Always, always tell your loan officer everything about everything is yes. my last piece of advice. <laughs> and make sure you understand your credit and your finances. If you know you have no way to finance the property and you're looking to get a pre-approval, wrong order. 
you should focus on, do you know what your credit score is? Is your credit score 600 or is it 700? And if you're not sure, we can tell you and we can help you get it, increase it. But you really want to understand, do you have those options to pull assets? Because if not, how are you going to pay for that property? Yeah. When in doubt, ask questions or open book. Tell us everything. Believe me. Interview. Interview. Mm -hmm. Find out what they can do for you. Yeah. All right. Well, guys, thanks so much for hanging with us for the last hour. And if you want to buy a house with Jay in Western North Carolina, email agents at the shop.com. If you want Megan to do your loan, email Megan at mortgageshop.co not com it's co we relate to the domain game on that and as always if you have any (laughs) yeah if you have any other questions for us uh, you can always come to any of our weekly office hours free open calls uh at strquestions.com thanks guys skull